the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand In for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, stuff going on at home, whatever's on your heart. 340-9585. That's 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. I don't have anything to announce except I'm inviting you all. I tried to do it yesterday, and I ran out of time, so it was a little awkward. But every year, and last year was the exception because of COVID, but every year for many, many years now, we've had a church family Christmas dinner, and I have been inviting for the last 10 years uh, people from the radio audience, if you'd like to come, we are at Mikulski Hall in Church, Texas, this coming Sunday at 4 o'clock. Uh, I know some of you might think, well, it'd be awkward to go into somebody else's. It, you, the, you'll love the people. They'll love on you. And uh, you'll be more than welcome. Uh, and every year we have some people from the radio show show up. So uh, we'd love to have you. 4 o'clock at Mikulski Hall in Church, Texas. Uh, coming up this week, this Sunday at 4 o'clock. If you can make it, great. Okay, let's get right to some questions that have been sent in. Um, Here is, let me read this first. Um, This is, it just came anonymously from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, I wanted you to know that there's a special Christmas episode of The Chosen now on YouTube and The Chosen app that you can watch now. They're building the new set here in Texas to start filming season three early next year. I think you and Mama Paula would enjoy it. Thank you, Anonymous. I appreciate it very much. I will check it out, what I've seen of uh, The Chosen uh, thus far. I've liked. I've got one major problem with it. Uh, that's not important now, but but beyond that, uh, thank you very much for thinking about us. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is the next question. This comes from... I got two questions, and this one is from Louis. Um, it says, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, talks about the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. What is meant by that exactly? Uh, Louis, the, the sevenfold spirit of God or the seven spirits of God, depending on the translation that you're reading, is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. And seven, numerically, uh, seven is the number of completion or fullness. And in Isaiah chapter 11, it, it speaks about the seven attributes 
of the Holy Spirit. And and basically all they're saying there is that is the, the Spirit of God, God in his fullness, um, uh, just like the Father's God and Jesus is God, so too is the Holy Spirit God. And the seven spirits just describe the attributes of God, the Holy Spirit, and seven is he is complete in all of that. So it's nothing. It doesn't mean that there's seven Holy Spirits. Uh, it's just a, a very Jewish way of saying the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Like Paul says in, to the Colossians, that the fullness of the Godhead lives in us in bodily form. The fullness of the Godhead. Well, this is talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So I hope that helps. Second question is Psalm 132, verses 11, 12, talks about God's promise to David. It says, if your descendants obey the terms of my covenant and laws, then your royal line will continue forever. And then he adds this, we know that they didn't and were taken off the throne, but Jesus is a descendant of David and his throne will last forever. So is verse 12 a reference to David's earthly uh, line or to Jesus? Um, in the long term, now obviously David wouldn't have known this, uh, Louis, but, but in the, in the um, uh, earthly realm, um, had Israel obeyed the Lord, then, then there would have always been a descendant, a good king, um, a descendant of David's on the throne. It would have continued unbroken. What, what God is saying here, this promise and, and its import to us, is that just because that line was broken, there is no king, for example, on that line uh, or on, on the throne of David now. Um, uh, we know that to be true. Uh, but that's because of sin, because they broke the covenant that God made with them. Um, but the promise to David is that there is a time coming when his descendant will again take his place on the throne and will last forever. Now, obviously, we know that takes place in the millennial reign of Christ. And all of those promises, whether it's to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or to Moses, to David, uh, all of those promises will be fulfilled literally and completely. So uh, that's that's the reference. Uh, it's it's though the line was broken, it was broken off because of sin, because of unbelief, and uh, that line will be reestablished because that's a promise that God has made. Thank you for those questions. We appreciate it very very much. Let's go to Cindy holding on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thanks for taking my call. I'm always glad when you say what day of the week it is, because for a brief moment, I got a panic attack and thought it was Wednesday. <laughs> Cindy, I do, I do that more to remind me what day it is than, than the people in the, in the audience. So, <laughs> Well, the other night, I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about the name Christ. And I noticed that it's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the, the part that was making me think about it is on Matthew sixteen sixteen, out of the NIV. It says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it made me think about the word Christ, um, that what he's doing is proclaiming that you are God in the flesh. And I was thinking, does the word Christ mean God in the flesh? So I'll get off the phone and listen on the radio. Good question, Cindy. Thanks a lot. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. It means literally, it's the Anointed One, or we would say the Messiah. Um, too often we think of Jesus' name as Lord Jesus Christ, but Lord is His title. Jesus was His name. He will save the people from their sins, and Christ is the office that He came to fulfill. And it's interesting, Cindy, that in Matthew, the most Jewish of all of the Gospel accounts. Um, Matthew's intent is to present Jesus as the Messiah or as the Christ um, uh, it, it, to, to fulfill that which was written or in fulfillment of the prophecy of. And over and over we get that. And it's just a reminder that he is the Christ uh, of the Jews. Uh, and, and of course, we who are believers will never forget that. But Israel and, and Jews individually certainly um, lost that um, promise a long time ago, uh, but that, that's all it means. So Christ is the anointed one or the the office that he holds, and that's all it means. So thanks, Cindy. Appreciate the 
question very much, very much. Here is a question from Scott from our mobile app. Uh, Pastor Ron, I know that Psalm 91, verse nine, chapter 91, verse 8 is poetry, but it made me wonder, are we going wit- to witness the judgment of others in heaven? Let me read the psalm and then we'll, we'll get to the answer. It says, you will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. Not in heaven, Scott. That's not where we're going to see it. In heaven, there's not going to be anything resembling judgment uh, or, or anything like that at all. We will see that moment in time when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is the Lord, a friend and foe alike to the glory of the Father in heaven. Now, that moment will be terrifying. Uh, not only that, but we're going to judge angels as well, the fallen angels. But that moment will be either the greatest moment ever when we bow before him and worship and we acknowledge that, that, that you are the Christ, just like Peter did, the, the son of the living God. Uh, or it will be the most terrifying moment in, in people's lives, not only for time, but also for eternity. Because when they bow and when they make that confession, having not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it is going to lead instantly to judgment. And we will see that, the great white throne judgment uh, after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Scott, we're going to be there, and we will see it then. We're going to see the, 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 what, what Revelation calls... I'm sorry, I had to clear my throat. What Revelation calls the second death. And we're going to be there, and we're going to we're going to see, and and you know, like everything else God does, we're going to, we're going to cry out, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty," um, and and it will be to His glory that evil is dealt with. Um, judgment is a strange work to God, uh, Isaiah twenty eight says, uh, but when we see the justice, the holiness, the goodness in judgment, and then then we go to our reward. Um, that won't happen in heaven. It will happen here on earth. Good question, Scott. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Brad. Hi, Pastor Ron. I pray you're doing well. Thank you for the prayers, Brad. My question is, should Christians be celebrating these holidays? According to the scriptures, none of these holidays are in the Bible. Christ was not born in December. By the way, Brad, just for a second, it, it's very likely that Christ was born in December. I'm sure it wasn't the 25th, or at least relatively sure, but uh, it seems very likely. Um, uh, the, 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 the scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson it seems very likely that he was born in December. Now, let's get back to your question. Um, and he said, neither were believers told to celebrate his birth date. I think people need to start asking, why do we celebrate these days? I used to until I started searching. Colossians 2.8 says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world. This scripture matches perfect and a good example of the subject. What are your thoughts? Thank you for responding. Brad, a couple of things. The Colossians 2.8 passage um, you've taken that out of context. It has nothing to do with with holidays or, or celebrating holidays at all. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2 is a glorious passage about uh, Jesus Christ and, and, and uh, you know, our... Um, let me see. I want to get to the passage there. Um, if you go back to uh, verse 4 in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is just told them that in Christ all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. And then he says, I tell you this, so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And then he says, uh, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith you were taught, and overflowing with kindness. And then comes the verse that you quoted, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. That actually, that passage in context, Brad, actually affirms the whole idea of celebrating these holidays. Now, just as the thinking of this world, the feudal thinking of people in this world is going to lead them away from Christ, but if we accept 
the fullness that's given to us in Christ. And as we grow in the faith, we can turn away from the, the, the hollow and deceptive philosophies of this world. And, and, and Paul was dealing particularly with some false teaching. So he's saying, hold on to what you know. Hold on to what I taught you. And in the same way, we can take a holiday like Christmas as, as whatever the origins are. Saturnalia, um, um, you know, is, is, is probably the origins. Um, uh, and certainly it was pagan. Um, but what we do is what Colossians chapter 2 is saying. We take that which is worldly and we turn it toward Christ. And in the, re- the result of that is Jesus gets all of the glory. And I think I think we run really close to a, a sort of a naive legalism, Brad, uh, if we say, well, we shouldn't do it because these are our, our pagan celebrations. Whether it's Easter or Christmas, what we do is on those two days a year, we have the opportunity, and it's given to us by the world we live in, we have the opportunity to witness to everybody. We take a day that was given to pagans, and we turn it around and turn it toward Jesus Christ. And what an opportunity to tell people Christmas. Everybody saying Merry Christmas. We have the opportunity as believers to say, do you know what that really means? It's not this worldly tradition or the principles of this world um, that, that, you know, Merry Xmas and Santa Claus. But it's about a baby who was born, who grew up to die for the sins of the world. And I think not only is that a cause worth celebrating, but what we do is we take that which was given to the world that is antichrist and we turn it toward Christ. And Brad, one thing that's very important for us to understand is two days a year in the United States of America and in other places in the world as well. But two days a year, the whole world is a witness to the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. Two days a year. And those days give us opportunities. Uh, Christmas Eve, we'll have a bunch of people in church. Um, uh, Easter Sunday, uh, people that never come to church will be here. And we get to tell them about Jesus. We get to evangelize them. That's what we're celebrating right there. So we're taking that which is evil, and we're turning it toward that which is good, toward him who is good. And that's, that's the definition of our Christian mission. So when we get these holidays, it's a wonderful opportunity to to turn that into something that's really, really beautiful, not only beautiful, but also productive. So those are my thoughts, Brad. And, um, uh, you know, we Christians, we, we got to be careful. You know, we sometimes we act like our shoes are too tight or we're walking around like we, we have a toothache or something. And, and I, I just think that that self-righteousness I think it is self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of God. The best thing that we can do is have our hearts filled with joy. Uh, we ought to be saying Merry Christmas to everybody. I like to tell people, um, uh, I'm celebrating Jesus' birthday. Happy birthday, Lord. And and uh, I get so many opportunities, Brad, to share with people because that's not what they're used to hearing from. But the passage, Colossians 2.8 you can't take that passage out of the context and apply it to um, Easter or Christmas at all. So uh, I think we ought to be celebrating the holidays, uh, and I think we ought to do it uh, for for his glory. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate the question. 340-9585. Here's a question from Matthew from our email inbox. Pastor, uh, when you spoke about divine appointments... Oh, we saw him at the play. He saw our play. Uh, it was such a great play. Thanks to everyone who participated and made it possible. What are your thoughts on Simon of Cyrene? What are some symbols or symbolic or practical applications we can take away from Simon of Cyrene having that divine appointment with Jesus? Matthew, he's one of my favorite characters, and and I, I have a tendency to work him into almost every um, Good Friday message. Um, you know, we call Good Friday the, the Friday that Jesus was crucified. And I love the fact that Simon's faith was rewarded by God. Simon from modern-day Libya, uh, from from um, the, the border of Africa. And um, um, he was a Jewish proselyte, a convert to Judaism, uh, almost certainly 
as as I think they presented really well in the play. This would have been his first Passover in Jerusalem, and he would have gone there so excited about uh, his first Passover, uh, probably a little bit blown away by the, the huge, huge crowds. I mean, it was always crowded at Passover in Jerusalem, but this Passover more so than others because this was the Passover that was prophesied by Daniel in chapter 9 of his uh, Old Testament prophecy. And everybody knew that this was the moment when the Christ would, would appear. And that's why there were so many people there. And Simon would have just been in that crowd and his eyes would have been wide open. Look at this. And he would have thought of himself the most blessed man on earth. I'm here. This is wonderful. Now, in the play, his sons were presented as being old enough to go. Probably that wasn't the case. But his sons became giant figures uh, in in the early church. Um, Rufus and Alexander became leaders in the church. Well, Simon of Cyrene, he just found himself, I always say, at the right right time at the right place, the right place at the right time. And um, Jesus fell in front of him. And the Roman spear would have been thrust at Simon, he would have been told to pick up the cross. You can imagine how horrified he would be. He would be. He would have to look into the face that was beaten so badly it was not recognizable as human in form. Uh, he would have wondered. This is the man. I mean, first trip to Jerusalem. This is this is the man that just days ago they were shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now he's he's watching this man who's been beaten, and he falls right in front of him. And suddenly Simon is thrust right into the middle of the action. Now, here's what I I think. Now, there's no way to demonstrate this, Matthew, for sure. But I think he was, as we all would be, reluctant to get involved. Reluctant to look into that horrific face. But I think he was so close to Jesus when he bent down to help him and to pick up the cross and carry it. Imagine that he and Jesus made eye contact. And while Jesus couldn't really speak, he would have looked at him in a way that would have said, it's okay. Help me. It's okay. And Simon picked up his cross. No wonder he got saved. No wonder his kids were saved. Jesus said to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me. Well, Simon was the living illustration of that, Matthew, and I think um, just a beautiful picture of of the blessings in the way any any of us who pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Thanks for the question, Matthew. I appreciate it very, very much. Here, I'm going to have to wait till that one until we come back on the break. I need a little more time for that one and probably for that one. Okay, here's a question. Anonymous from our email inbox. I'm listening to this year's Men's Retreat Studies with Gino Geraci. Uh, that must have been a great weekend. I'm really enjoying it. Question, so Moses did get to go into the promised land because he misrepresented God as being angry. Or he said didn't get to go into the promised land because he misrepresented God as being angry. Do you think God told Moses of his other future plans he had for him? to soften the blow of not being able to lead the people in the promised land. You know, one of the things anonymous that, that uh, God's not concerned about in the least is softening the blow. Too much is given, much is required. Jesus said that, and certainly that applied in Moses' life. And, um, um, you know, when you misrepresent God, there's going to be a consequence. And, um, you know, we don't read of Moses rebelling. We don't, God, you're not fair, nothing like that. Moses understood. Moses talked with God as a man would talk to another man face to face, as a man would talk to a friend. And so Moses knew that he deserved what he was getting. Now, God didn't tell Moses of anything other than the plans that he'd already told him that we have in the first five books of our Old Testament. So, um, I don't think Moses knew that he was coming back on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I think that's something else we need to remember. Moses did get to come to the Promised Land. He came on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah. 
and and saw Jesus right there. So uh, I think, especially uh, with somebody in in the position that Moses was in, um, he understood that there would be consequences. He understood that he was accountable. I wish we would understand as believers that we're accountable. So, um, again, God not at all concerned about softening the blow. God is righteous and and just, and Moses, uh, better than anybody in the day, knew exactly that was going to happen. I think what Moses was, was sorry that he was missing out. God let him look at it. But that which Moses chased for really 80 years, he missed out on because he gave into his flesh. A moment of anger, he forgot how much God loved the people. Moses, for a moment, forgot how much he loved the people. And that was character, characteristic of his whole life. Everyone who is in a position of leadership of any kind, we need to understand how accountable we are. I've got one other thought on this uh, coming back. By the way, Gino Geraci was great. It was a great time. I'm glad you were able to go to the website and watch it. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our show 340-9585 for your live calls and questions let's go to kerrville and talk with luke on line one luke thanks for calling you're on the air Hi, Pastor Ron. Thanks for taking my call. I enjoy your show. My pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Um, I had a question about um, Jesus. When in uh, Acts seven fifty five, um, he's Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, and in Hebrews ten eleven, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Um, mm-hmm. I assume uh, maybe this isn't literal. Or is it figurative? Because in one sense, he's uh, showing that the sacrifices are done, so he sits down. And I'm not sure why. Whenever they're stoning Stephen, he's standing at the, uh, Stephen sees him standing at the right hand of God. Uh, should I yeah, read the Luke, that's a, verses? Or? No, I've got them. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture. And you're right, because his work was finished, Jesus is seated. He remains seated. To this very day. Now, the interesting thing about this picture is, is that the only time that Jesus, um, literally since he took his position seated in the in the the power seat, the only time he's left that seated position is to receive Stephen, who was the first, the very first martyr in the church. This is a man who, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a man who 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 did miracles. Um, he, he, Acts chapter 7 is the greatest history of Israel in, in all the Bible. You want a great condensed um, history of Israel. Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives it. And as he stood for God, Jesus was standing for him. So for a moment, for, for this one incident, Jesus got up. He saw heaven open, Stephen did, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand. And, and the way I always envision this, Luke, is, is Jesus' arms were open, ready to receive Stephen to himself. And, and the significance is, as the very first martyr of the church, this would be that moment where Jesus would show the, the, the untold millions of martyrs throughout the rest of history. Um, this is our reception. When we stand for him, he's going to stand for us. It's very symbolic. It's literal. It's real. But it's it's very symbolic. And the message is, 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 I'll stand for you when you stand for me. 
This is the hero's reception in heaven that Stephen got and, and indicative of the, of the reception that all of us who stand for Christ will receive when we go. You know, there's, there's all kinds of stories. Fox's Book of Martyrs um, is a, a radio program on this station uh, who uh, talks about the, 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 the martyred church. Um, all over the world, throughout every era of history, People have been giving their lives in service for Jesus Christ. I think about um, um, the scene when ISIS beheaded the the Egyptian Christians, the Coptic Christians, um, and all they had to do was deny Christ, and they would have been saved. And they didn't do it. And 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 every one of those men were received into heaven in the same way. And I imagine got a little high five from Stephen on the way into the presence of the Lord himself. So, good pickup, but he sat down to demonstrate his work is completed. Nothing else needs to be done. But on that one occasion, he stood up to receive Stephen as the first martyr of the church. Good question, Luke. That's good Bible study. Here is a question from Tiffany from our mobile app. Pastor Ron, could you please explain Genesis 9.27? And I'm going to do that. 9.27 says, Thank, um, that, um, May God expand the territory of Japheth. May he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. Now, in order to do this, Tiffany, i got to go back a couple of verses. This is, of course, after the flood. Noah and his family um, are repopulating the earth. Um, Noah has been... Uh, exposed, embarrassed by sin. He got drunk and he lay naked and, and his nakedness was uncovered. And it wasn't just that. There was other behavior going on. We'll see that in this answer. But he got angry at, at, at Ham's intent. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. Now Canaan is a descendant of Ham. It says, The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So it's not that Ham is cursed. In the first verse of the same chapter, Ham had already been blessed by God. So this isn't, um, as is often wrongly taught, an example of of one man's ability to curse another. This is not a curse by God at all. Um, You know, we think, well, well, Ham was cursed, and there's all kinds of horrible, horrible teaching um, that that because Ham's descendants were uh, dark-skinned, uh, there's been horrible teaching throughout generations that they were cursed by God. This is a prophetic statement made under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is simply God like reporting a news story that's already happened because he knows the future. And history bears out the truth of this prophecy. The Canaanites were destroyed by their own sin. In Joshua chapter 9, the story of the Gibeonites um, and and the book of Judges tells how the Canaanites were subjected to slavery by Israel. So this was a prophecy. God knew that Ham's descendants were going to inherit their father's sin nature. So that's what he's doing. And then he blesses um, um, Shem. Um, um, and then we get to the, the verse that you talked about. May God extend the territory of Japheth. Prophetically, Japheth is the father of all the Gentiles people, uh, our ancestors. These are the people from chapter 10 uh, who settled in Europe, the Romans, the Greeks, the Medo-Persian empires, all came uh, from the descendants of Japheth. And then it says, May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. Now, this is one of the most remarkable prophecies in this passage of Scripture. This is a picture of Gentile nations being included in the promises of God. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, says, The mystery made known to me by revelation, this is the Apostle Paul, um, he says, You'll be able to understand my insight in the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. Jesus also spoke about 
you and me, Tiffany, being included. Is this Tiffany? Yes. It's Tiffany. I'm sorry. I didn't want to misspeak. Uh, Jesus said, I, John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So when you look at prophecies like this, Tiffany, the, the value is that we can, we can remember in those times when we have doubt, when things don't look like they're going well, we can remember that God always keeps his promises. So all of that to be, is, it's all of, this is a prophecy, and it happened just like that. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from an anonymous wife. And I looked at this one earlier. It's heartbreaking, so let me kind of get through it. Pastor Ron, when someone continues a behavior at home that he's had for the past 12 years, does that mean he's not saved? My husband, who constantly complains about everything, is rude to me, and everything seems to bother him. I used to think it was me, and he was unhappy with me, but I've learned that he used to be just like that with his older brother and mother. Um, I say used to because his mom and brother stopped talking to him for two years, and this was one of the reasons he now talks to them again, and the way he talks to them is so much better. I am now the only one who deals with this daily. I'm scared as our three kids grow older, he will treat them like this. He does apologize every time this happens and says, I'll repent. He uses this uh, by saying, this is my thorn in my side. And I've even heard that the Lord has me like this because he's trying to work in you. Um, Let me stop there for a moment. Okay, I'll, I'll get to the rest of the question. Anytime somebody uses their sinful behavior to turn it back on someone else, God is using my thorn to change you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. So just completely discount that. And you know what I would suggest you do when those conversations happen? It's just real simple. If you're not going to speak to me with kindness, then we're not going to talk at all. And that's what I don't think that's being disrespectful. I would just say when when he starts speaking to you negatively, I would just say, you know what? I think I'm going to take a walk with Jesus because he loves me. And I'm not going to listen to you. Talk to me this way. I think that's tough love, but I think it's appropriate tough love. I'll get more into that in just a moment. Um, and then this gets to the, the, the point, the fruit of the Spirit I don't see in him at home. And then she closes it by saying, the more I hear your teachings, the more I'm convinced, convinced that my husband isn't saved. His salvation has been so heavy in my heart. Please help. Um, anonymous wife. The first thing I would say, obviously your husband is a professing believer. He's going to talk about uh, this is his thorn in the flesh. Um, um, please, please, please. You say in your your email that you can't talk to him about these things. You have to talk to him about these things. You have to. You have no choice. It's your responsibility. So talk to him. Just say, I don't want to live in a home that dishonors Christ. And our marriage is just a joke. We People think we're okay because you act differently when you're around them when we go to church, but this isn't okay. And insist on marriage counseling. Go to your church. Go to your pastors. And tell them that, that you really need marriage counseling. If your husband refuses to go, then this is one of the places that you're just going to have to trust the Lord with him. You're going to say, you know what? I'm going to go. If you won't go, I'm going to go. And I'm going to ask you only to pray about whether or not you should go. You're to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, and you're not doing that. And so if you won't go to counseling, I'm going to go. And I just think he responded to the tough love that his family gave him. Didn't talk to him for two years, and then they came back, and he was nicer to them. I think sometimes that's the kind of behavior 
that gets people's attention. Now, is he saved? I don't know. I always treat people with regard to their salvation according to the way they're behaving. And if somebody is acting like an unbeliever, that's how I treat them. Now, if you want to know how to be a wife living with an unbeliever, 1 Peter chapter 3, first five verses, read that. And in your home, you should be, I, I, I know it's hard, this is so difficult, and and maybe you can call on Thursday or or, or um, you can you can remain anonymous, but call on Thursday and, and let Paula, she lived this First Peter 3 life for a long, long time, 13 years. And I promise you, I was a way bigger jerk than your husband is. So read those verses. Let the Spirit of God speak to you and make sure that you, on your part, you're trying to live at peace with all people. Do what you can to be filled with joy. Don't expect that your joy is going to come from your husband. Expect that the Lord Jesus, his presence in your life is the source of your joy. And don't let him get to you. Again, I understand it bothers you. But don't let him get to you. And the one thing I like the most about your email is that your heart is for your husband's salvation. So God is going to ask you to make some sacrifices for that salvation. That does not mean that you let him mistreat you. Take my advice from earlier. Just if he's going to treat you badly, just, well, I'm going to go take a walk with Jesus. I'm going to go and, and, and pray. I'm going to go open my Bible. I'm just going to go and do something else. And if he says, well, well why are you leaving or why are you not talking to me? Just say, because you treat me so terribly. And then he blames you for it. His thorn in the flesh is God's using it to work in you. Remember, Jesus will give you the grace you need. Jesus will give you the strength and the joy that's lacking from him. All you got to do is remember to die to yourself every day. First Peter 3, the first five verses, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Ruben from Seguin on line one. Ruben, thanks for holding. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. I pray that you're doing Thank well you. today again. I am. Thank you. That, that's good. Uh, I have a question. Uh, John, I believe it's eight nine. I think he might have started in seven. Uh, when he was, uh, you know, uh, teaching in the synagogues during the festivals and the Jews tried to come and, uh, you know, catch him in things and they, you know, wanted to stone him, but they couldn't. Uh, mm-hmm. He referred to himself as the bread of life and I believe it was seven. And then in the later passages, uh, I know he, he said, he said, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, I believe that's what he said. And I know that he didn't mean that literally, but uh, I guess in a spiritual sense, um, I want to know what did he mean by that? Um, okay, I think you've got the wrong passage of Scripture, Reuben. John um, uh, chapter 8, um, verse 9, is it this, those who began to go away, or those who uh, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left and the woman was still standing there. And this was the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Um, he he did call himself, not in this conversation, but he did refer to himself as the bread of life. Now, when he says to the Jews, the leaders, that unless you eat the flesh of my flesh and drink the blood of my blood, now that was um, um, twisted around, his words were twisted around, um, uh, Christians after Jesus' death and resurrection, they were accused of being uh, cannibals and all kinds of things just because people didn't understand. But that's not what he was saying. Now, you have to understand what was going on. People were coming in droves. And Jesus, when the people were coming to him, um, Jesus knew what was in their hearts and he knew that they were coming for the miracles. They were coming not to give themselves to Christ but to get something from him. And 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 basically the crowds were getting so out of control, 
Jesus simply upped the stakes. He said, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. And that's what it means. In a Jewish mindset, to eat with somebody was to become one with them. And so when Jesus was telling the religious leaders that unless you eat the flesh of my flesh and drink the blood of my blood, you have no part of me, what Jesus was really saying, and I'll put it in terms, Reuben, that you and I would understand culturally today. He's saying, unless you surrender everything to me, unless I become your Lord, you really have no part of me at all. You know, Reuben, in our culture, people argue all the time, uh, easy grace, cheap grace, lordship salvation. If Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, you don't have a Lord that saves you. And and so what he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, um, I want everything. Whatever I'm going through, you have to go through. And that's what he meant there. And it's instructive for us because when he said that, remember the crowds were getting huge and his disciples are thinking, wow, this is great. Everybody's following us and everybody's coming after us. And Jesus sent him away because he was giving the, 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 his disciples a demonstration of what was really in their heart. And when they went away and they started very quickly, when they heard that this is the cost of following Jesus, they turned away because they didn't want to sacrifice that's what was in their heart the whole time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders, uh, Jesus said. And they proved it. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples, you see what's in their hearts. They didn't want me for me. They came to me for what I could do for them. And, and 2,000 years later, Reuben, we've still got people doing that same thing. John 6.35, Reuben, is the, 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 uh, where he says that he's the bread of life. And, and later in John chapter 6, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So he's saying, surrender it all. Paul said it this way, uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In our culture, we've got people say, well, 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 I'm a believer, but I don't think you have to be radical. Jesus says, you've got to be pretty radical. So I hope that makes sense to you, Reuben. It is always good to hear from you. So it's not John 8, it's John 6 that you were referring to. Thank you, and thank my research department over here for that. Let's see, we've got one more question. We've got five minutes. Jeanette says, boy, this is a good question to follow Ruben's question. She says, Pastor Ron, what's the difference between being a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus? I think essentially, Jeanette, both of those things are the same thing. Uh, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you follow Jesus. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, I call them by name, and they follow me. So to follow Jesus means that we're going to follow him for instruction. We're going to do what he tells us to do. To be a disciple of Jesus, the word literally means a student. It it means we're committed, we're in this for the long haul. We're serious about this. You know, so often, and I, I know pastors, I hear them on the radio all the time, calling instead of calling themselves Christians, they're referring to Christ followers. Um, all Christians ought to be Christ followers. So the the a uh, follower is somebody who's committed to following Jesus, not not hoping that Jesus will follow us and let us do what we want to do. A disciple is someone who is serious about following Jesus. And when you're serious about following Jesus, he's going to take you places, Jeanette, that that you wouldn't go on your own, but there are places that after you've been there with Jesus, you wouldn't miss out on. So being a follower and a disciple of Jesus, in my view, is pretty much the same thing. I think we have to be careful about people say, well, I'm a Christian, and they're not following Jesus at all. And they're not interested in becoming a student of his teachings. So uh, I just think this is a level of seriousness that is required for all of us. So thank you for that, Jeanette. Hope that helps. Last question of the day it comes from Margaret. She says, my question is about church leadership. Should one man, and in parentheses she writes the pastor, have all the control in a church? Um, Margaret, there's all kinds of different church governments and, and systems that are in place. Um, but but here's here's the biblical system. Jesus is the head of the church. It's his now we have a, 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 a we're all kings and priests. We all have the spirit of God. 
But when God gives a vision to a church, he gives a vision to a man. And then the man, certainly not supposed to be a control freak, certainly not to abuse the power. God can take care of those men. And we see it happen all the time. But the the pastor that's following Jesus, um, he's the one who should, should lead and guide the direction of the church. He's the one that God gives instructions to. Let me give you a couple personal examples. I've been blessed with the, the best leadership here at Calvary Chapel ever. I've had the, the, the two elders that started with me 26 years ago are still elders here at the church. And we've added elders as our church has grown over the years. And, and, uh, and that's great. But they realize that their job as an elder, leader in the church, is to support the vision of ministry that God has given me. We don't vote on things. Uh, I say, this is what God has instructed me to do, or this is this is what the Lord is leading me to do. And uh, and their job is to support that. Now, if I go crazy, if I'm a control freak, or if I'm saying, you got to follow me, we're doing something that's unbiblical, believe me, my elders, all of them, would stand up to me and say, no, that's we're not we're not going to support that. But we haven't had those kind of issues. So uh, if you're in a church where one man has control and he's exercising that control in an ungodly way, you're probably in an unhealthy, uh, out-of-balance church, and maybe it's time to find something else. It's equally bad, maybe worse, to be in a church where the congregation is the one making the decisions. You want unity, you want people following in the Spirit, and uh, you want people sharing the same heart. Margaret, thank you for the question. Well, I'm out of time for today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.